history of 1 Samuel, and there's been a lot of progress since chapter 3. Chapter 3 dealt with the calling of Samuel, and this was the first time that Samuel had heard from the Lord, and as we saw in our text, that the word of the Lord was not frequent in those days. And so one of the things that we left off with in our minds was, what was the proper response when God calls? And that was, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. And that's where we left off, and that was an interesting uh, look at how God was working in the life of, of Israel, and we took a look specifically at God calling Samuel, but we, we could also take those truths and extrapolate them out to, to look at a couple of things, and one was that there's always a first time for God to call anybody. There's always a first time. And that was the first time that he called Samuel, but for you and I, there's a first time where God reveals himself to us in a particular way, and we respond to that. But then there's also a second thing is that God can call us to a particular work. And the work that God had called Samuel to, we will start to see unfold before us today and over the next few weeks. But one of the things that Samuel was called to do, the particular work that Samuel was called by God to do, was to purify the religion of Israel. Because the sons of Eli had been messing it up. There had been so much gone wrong. And what God said was to tell Eli, um, basically, you're fired. Your sons are fired. And I'm going to do something in Israel. And what he would do, it would come through the work of Samuel. So we know that God calls us for the first time, but he also calls us to a particular work. And what our proper response is, is to say to God when he calls, speak, Lord. For your servant hears. And that's what we did last week, but there's, there's so much that happened between chapter 3 and chapter 7. We're in chapter 7 today, and there's, there's so much there. I, I, I really encourage you to read that to, to get some context, but let me give you the cliff notes to what happened. Basically, Israel went out to war against the Philistines, and they did not win. They lost over 30,000 men. Not only that, they lost the ark of God. And when someone came from the battlefields running for the, to, to give a report, Eli was sitting there by the gate, and he hears the report, and he hears that both of his sons have fallen in battle and that they are dead. But what we see is that when he hears that the ark had been captured, that's the moment where he falls back, just blown away by this news, and he falls back and breaks his neck and dies. So he's, he, his two sons are dead, 30,000 Israelite soldiers are dead, Eli himself is dead, and now one of Eli's daughter-in-laws is in the middle of giving birth to a son, and she hears that her brother-in-law has died, her husband has died, and her father-in-law Eli has died, and she dies giving birth. And they say, don't, don't worry, you have, you've given birth to a son, but she, she just was blank and did not respond. She was gone. So the days were heavy, the days were dark. And we do know in that that God then judges the Philistines for taking the ark. And there's some interesting things that happen there that he, his, his hand is heavy against them. And they say, what should we do? And they talk to their folks and they come up with this idea that we should, we should, we should send it back. Get it out of here. Send the ark away. Get it back to its proper place. And not only that, put some gold stuff in it. And you can go look what that gold stuff was. It's really weird. But they send it back. And then the Israelites get it, and many men die, even in, in that process. And they say, who can stand before our holy God? And so the ark stops. 
It doesn't quite make its full trip. And it stops and it stays in kiriath Jerim. And if you read in verse 2, it says, A long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. 20 years. So all of this death and darkness is happening, largely because of the rebellion of Israel. And what we will see today is some of the restoration that begins to take place. And so um, what I want you to have in your mind is kind of a bookmark. There's going to be many other things that I want to work through this morning, but have a visual of these bookends, if you will. And on this side, think of left to right, your left to right, repentance. And in the middle is intercession. And then on the end, the other bookend is restoration. So repentance, intercession, and then restoration. And that's what we will see an image of here in the passage that we take a look at um, this morning. And the major doctrine that I want to defend is deliverance and restoration grow out of Confession and intercession. Deliverance and restoration grow out of confession and intercession. And I want you just to think of those two words, confessing and intercessing. And, 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 and I want you just to start to wrestle with what that is. And we will unpack that um, as we go. But I want to put it on the screen real quick before we really dive into this. It's a question. If you are honest with yourself... How long has it been since you genuinely sought the Lord? It's around 20 years that these folks are lamenting and not really seeking the Lord. So I ask you, how long has it been since you have genuinely sought the Lord? What, is it, what does it mean to seek the Lord? It means to come to Him and say, I want to be near you. It means to come to Him and say, my life is yours. It means to come to Him and say, correct me where I am wrong. It means to come to him and say, make me like your son, Jesus Christ, purify me. And it also means we come to him and ask to be put to work for his glory. But there's some things that happen when we do that. It also means that we get confronted by our sin. And the proper response then is to confess, repent, and be restored. So there's a whole lot there. A whole lot. But that's what I want to try to defend this morning is that deliverance and restoration grow out of confession and intercession because confession alone doesn't get us there. We need someone interceding for us. The people of Israel needed somebody to intercede for them. We have somebody to intercede for us. Exactly. He is the great high priest. So as we get going this morning, the three stops that we will make is stop one, repentance goes before deliverance. This is a truth that we see all throughout Scripture, but we also see it explicitly here. The second stop we'll make is we'll take a look at confession going before intercession. Before there can be intercession, there has to be confession. And then third, we're going to take a look at this idea of recognition going before restoration. So I said the book ends, if you will, is repentance and restoration. But in between them is, is confession and intercession. Uh, and so we're going to try to unpack all of these ideas, working through the text this morning, making these three stops. So let's start with our first stop. Repentance goes before deliverance. If you take a look at it here in verse 3, 7, 3, it says, And Samuel said to the, all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, do you see that? If you are turning, returning to the Lord with all your heart and put away the foreign gods, and then he goes on and, and he says, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. 
and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. You see, he's saying, he's saying here's the relationship you have, to, you have to recognize, is that before God will deliver you, you must repent. You must turn from the evil that you are committed to currently and turn towards God. And there's a couple of things that are worth mentioning here as we try to unpack this idea, uh, is this idea of this returning is repenting. To return is to repent, to come back to that which you were, uh, and that is fellowship with God. And in, in, in the word, you know, this is Hebrew, and, and so we can't mix up things because there's also a New Testament idea of repentance, but they are very similarly related. And the basic idea is to turn from something, to change directions. And so what they had been doing is they had been walking away from the Lord. And they'd been walking towards their idols. They'd been walking in love and, 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 and affection and commitment towards their idols. And so to return would mean to turn around and then come back, to return to. You can't return if you've never been. So we return to the Lord. But what, what has to happen there is he says, he says if, you, uh, if, if you really are, it's a question. Do you see that? It's a condition, conditional, if. He's not assuming anything. He's saying, if this is truly what you want to do, if this truly is what you are about, okay, let's walk through it together. If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, all your heart is the total inner commitment. And what we will see as we wrestle through repentance is repentance is not only an outward turning and moving. There should be conduct connected with true repentance. I will make that argument. But it starts with the first an inward commitment to repent. And we would say in the New Testament definition, and we see uh, metanoia and metaneo is the idea to have a change of mind. But let me push on us a little bit. It doesn't just simply mean having a change in your intellectual ascent. It doesn't mean you just know some facts now, and now I once believed these things, and now I believe these things, and that's all I have to do to repent. There are some who will preach that, and I'm offensive to those who preach that because I say I disagree with you because the Bible says it's not just believing the right things. James clearly says, does not the devil and the demons believe in one God? And tremble, so they have the facts straight. So true repentance is one, yes, having your mind changed. But it goes much further than just intellectual assent. We have our minds changed, but as Samuel is saying, we return to the Lord with all our heart, which means there's a total inner commitment. That total inner commitment is absolutely crucial before there will ever be any outward response. You cannot truly repent as if to turn from your sins into God if you haven't got the heart right. So we pray that God would change our hearts. If you're struggling with sin, you don't simply pray, God help me to stop doing this thing. That should be part of what you pray. But a more effective prayer is to say, God, help me stop loving this thing. Make me hate this thing. And then when you hate that, and you seek only to get pleasure and satisfaction from God, the sin you once enjoyed, you enjoy less and less. And then when you enjoy it less and less, you are less inclined to do it. So you ask, God, help me to repent in the true sense, which means starting with my inner commitments. My inner love, affection, and commitments that then will translate to outward obedience. Don't get the behavior mixed up. 
Don't only treat the behavior. What precedes the behavior is inner commitment. So Samuel says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, God will do this thing for you. He will deliver you. But I'm going to list three things that I believe are very critical that Samuel identifies. He says, first, put away your idols. What does it mean to put away your idols? And actually, it's kind of funny. We talked a little bit about this in Sunday school this morning. What is an idol? Well, an idol is, is anything that we have placed our hope in, in the place of God. Uh, and and, I, and I, I really think it's worth looking at when we say these idols were here, and they were things that we could look at and bow down to. And in our day, they aren't as obvious to us, but I believe they are very much still here. And idols can be anything that we make ultimate things. Tim Keller does a very good job explaining this. He says, idols are the things that we take that are good things and we make them ultimate things. Those are the things which we say, if we did not have them, life would not be worth living. So you can say, if, I, if God took away my kids... I wouldn't want, might as well kill me. I don't want to be alive anymore. That's an, you made your children an ultimate thing. If, if you say, if I lost my job, uh, life would not be worth living. I couldn't go on. That is an ultimate thing. If you say, if my wife left me, I don't want to, I might as well just commit suicide because life isn't worth living. You've made your spouse an ultimate thing. You've made your spouse an idol. We ought to be able to say, God, take everything away from me. And even when you take everything away from me, I have all I need, and that is you. Then we can say we've purified our hearts away from idols. But idols really are a study in hope. What are we hoping in? Because if we're hoping in anything other than God, we really are seeing something else as our true salvation. And if we believe that if we just have a little bit more money, we'll be saved from this current suffering, if we truly believe if we had just a couple more good kids, then we'd be saved from this present suffering. <laughs> Maybe that's partially true. You start to look at this, and it really is a study of hope, and it truly is a study of salvation. What are we hoping in to save us from our current suffering? If you think maybe one more degree or one more promotion at work, if that, that will save me from this feeling of being worthless. Uh, it'll give me some sense of value. Uh, you're also in a place where you need to look at where have you placed your hope and where are you expecting your salvation to come from? So question this idea of ultimate things. So Samuel says, put away your idols. This is two, direct your heart to the Lord. As we said, that heart direction, turning to the Lord with our heart is that total inner commitment. With the most intimate part of us, we say, we want to go towards you, Lord. And then three, he gives you some, some actual Verbs here, as, as in, what, what can you do? Well, serve him only. Serve him only. So he says, put away your idols, direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. He says, if you'll do these things, he will deliver you. So then we go on, verse 4. It says, so the people of Israel put away the bowels and the Astaroth and serve the Lord only. That's good, isn't it? Um, this is it's such an interesting thing when we start to think about this, this idea of repentance. Um, so let me give you a contrast uh, that's a similar thought process here from the New Testament. It actually comes from Acts 26, 17 through 20. So let me read it. I'll put part of it up on the screen for you. This is the Gentiles. This is, this is Christ speaking to Paul. To whom I am sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to the light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
Then Christ goes on, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Do you see that? So just like the New Testament idea of repentance is not just intellectual assent alone, but it, it, it requires a turning from the power of Satan to the power of God, and to do that means that you do something outwardly, not just inwardly. Now, that doesn't mean that we are saved by our own moral reformation. It doesn't mean that unless you turn from every sin you've ever committed and all the things that you love now, and you get rid of all of those, and you're walking perfectly sinless, unless you do that, you can't be saved because you haven't truly repented. That is false. But what it should be is in your heart that you are turning your affections or your commitments away from darkness to the light, away from Satan to God. And what you should see is a steady trend, a trajectory of the, of the uh, consistent character and nature of your walk as you're progressively coming more and more like Christ. And for every one of us, those trends will look different. Okay, think of the data points. You, you, you may have very, a trend line that looks like this, and here's your axis, right? Uh, your, your Y axis, and here's X. Someone else may be doing this, but they're still trending towards Christ-likeness. So we can't compare each other's trend lines, and now I'm getting all statistical on you, but imagine our trend lines may look very different, but the overall nature is that we are becoming more and more Christ-like. Why? Because our hearts are being changed. We love sin less and less. And, and, and something that John MacArthur said a few years ago that, that really messed me up, he says, you know what, when you start to actually feel this and you see the progress in your repentance and your holiness, not only, not only do you see more and more ways in which you're not like Christ, you become less and less satisfied with the progress you have made. You become less satisfied with the progress you have made. Some of us, were tempted to say, well, I'm better than I was back then. And then we say, I guess this is a good place to stop. I'll pitch my tent here. I'll drill a well here. I'm good, right? Build a barn. Let's build a house. We'll camp here. But the idea is that we should become less and less satisfied with the progress we have made. Why? Because God says the goal is to be holy for I am holy. Have you gotten there yet? No. Keep marching. Good soldier, keep marching. So what we have to recognize is the Old Testament and the New Testament are consistent in this. Repentance goes before deliverance. And here, this specific case, they are delivered from the Philistines. But in our case in general, we are delivered from the power of darkness. We are delivered from the power of Satan into the kingdom of God. Repentance goes before deliverance. Two, confession goes before intercession. Confession goes before intercession. So check this out. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water there and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, verse 6, we have sinned. Do you see that? We have sinned against the Lord. So they confess. And this is something we've got to take a look at because whenever, whenever they are in this state, they are in this broken state before the Lord. It's been uh, a few decades maybe. It's been a long time, at least 20 years that they've been struggling here. That they, they, come, they come to this place where they say, I'm going to confess. And to confess means to tell. Confess means to say. So think of this. Confession is telling. Repentance is turning. So we have to confess, and that means that we tell God where we went wrong. 
tell God where we went wrong. And this is what happens here. It says, we have sinned. And so they fasted. And, and, and in part of this process, isn't that interesting that they value the, the spiritual over the physical? And I think fasting is a lost art. I think I've been talking to a few, few different individuals about this recently. And that's something that I'm convicted of is that we've lost this, this, this discipline of fasting. To say to our flesh, no. To tell our flesh, no. And to devalue the spiritual things over the physical things. To say, in this suffering, let me come before the Lord. And when I'm thinking about the things that I'm missing out on, use that time and use that pain to reflect on the Lord. You know what's interesting? I'm probably for the next few weeks, I'll just keep mentioning all this stuff I'm studying about Baptist history. But I think they got it right. And I think we're messing up some things now. And I won't go into all of that. One of the things that they used to do before they would even bring people into the ministry was that they would fast before they laid hands on them. The whole church would fast. Also, whenever they were adding members to the church, they would fast. And consider it. It meant something. It doesn't mean anything anymore. Or if it means anything, it means less to us. And I'm not saying just you, me too. We've got to look at this and say, are we rightly viewing these holy matters? And here the proper response was they fasted that day. This is God. I want to value the spiritual things over the physical things. And they confess to God, says, we have sinned. And they don't just generally say we've sinned, you know, confessing secret sins, but they said we have sinned against the Lord. So they told the truth. They told the truth about themselves. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. This is such a beautiful, beautiful thing we look at here. And then it goes on in verse 8 a little further, and that's where we start to get in the intercession element of this. And they say, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us. Verse 8. Do you see this? And that's, that's because um, their gathering did not go unnoticed. So they said, okay, we're going to gather together, and we're going to confess our sins. We're going to repent. We're going to do these things. We're going to, we're going to try to get right with the Lord. Um, Samuel, please help us in this. And Samuel says, yep, uh, put away your idols. Direct your heart to the Lord. Serve him only. And they're like, we're ready. We want, to, we want to tell the truth. We want to turn. We want to do this. And they say, let's all get together. And they pour out the water. And, and we're not really exactly sure what all that means, but it's an, it's an outward profession of saying, Lord, you are the one who's greater than everything. And maybe we're out here in the desert, uh, and, there's, and water is scarce but we value even over this precious commodity i don't know but there's this act of like we want to worship you so they all get together and guess who sees it the philistines like hmm they're all gathered in one place maybe we can come and attack them now and that's their idea so their gathering doesn't go unnoticed and, and so Samuel uh, has to intercede for the people. And that's what they say. Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us that he may save us. And they're not specifically just saying saving uh, in the salvific sense that we kind of think of. But there's this first order priority. These guys are coming to kill us. Save us. Right? But this is an interesting observation. I believe that there's also a truth that can transcend that time to our time and that our gathering so too does not go unnoticed. I believe the enemy notices when we gather. And do you know what he wants to do? The same thing the Philistines wanted to do. Attack and destroy. And we have to pray 
that God would protect us. We have to pray that we as a church are repenting of our sins, confessing our sins, turning our hearts to the Lord, and then asking Christ to intercede for us. Why? Because the enemy sees us. The enemy hates us. And he wants to destroy us. So this is what Samuel does. Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. That's verse 9. So he offers a sacrifice. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Isn't this interesting? This is just like, just like Moses interceded for the people. Samuel does the same thing. Um, yet, I want us to not miss that there's a, a true mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the only one truly qualified to go between God and man. But in this instance, confession went before intercession. And since they confessed their sins, and since they plead, they plead with Samuel, he was willing to go and intercede on their behalf. Do you get that? If they did not confess their sin, if they were not willing to turn, do you think Samuel would have went to the Lord on their behalf? No way. So we can't miss that. Confession goes before intercession. But the, the gospel is a, a very interesting, big mystery, because there's also a part of it where God knew. He knew all of it. And, and what the scripture says is that he's sent Christ to save us while we were yet sinners. So don't get that wrong. Don't get that mixed up to think that it's somehow based on your performance. That, you know, God's not going to take note. God's not going to have mercy on you. God's not going to love you until you get all these things cleaned up. Because what it says literally is that Christ came to save sinners. And while we were yet dead in our trespasses, while we were yet enemies of God, the story of redemption was put into play. But there is a response on our behalf that is to turn from sin to God. There has to be a response where we repent, we confess, and in that Christ says, I will be your true intercessor. And he still does that. He intercedes for us with the Father. And so with that, I want to read a couple of of beautiful gospel promises from the New Testament. I'm going to put them on the screen. You can read along with me. But these are some of the beautiful ones I just wanted to put in your minds this morning. The first one, this saying is trust, trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of whom I am foremost. 1 Timothy 1.15. If we confess our sins, he is just and faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9. God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Romans 5, 8 through 11. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, you see that? The man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. Timothy 2, 5. Christ Jesus, who was raised, who sits at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Romans 8, 34. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. 2 Corinthians 5, 20. And then finally, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Hebrews 4, 7. So we preach to see people reconciled to God. We preach so that people will confess I mean, they tell God where they went wrong. We preach to see people repent, to turn from what is wrong, to turn from the power of darkness and the power of Satan to God. 
So we say confess and repent and have faith that Christ will intercede for you. I want to read you this statement I wrote down as I was wrestling through this. What is the heart? What is the emotional focus of this message? I want you to write this down. Confessing and repenting of our sins is the safest thing we can do with Christ as our mediator who intercedes for us. Confessing and repenting of our sins is the safest thing we can do with Christ as our mediator who intercedes for us. We tell him and we turn, but there is no fear in this. There's only fear in confessing and repenting. There's only fear in telling God the truth when you expect him to act out in wrath. There's only fear in confessing your sins to another human being when you think that they're going to judge you and belittle you and be against you. But there's nothing safer than to confess your sins to Christ who is on your side. So I want to implore you to do that this morning. And if you feel he's tugging at your heart, Hebrews 4, 7 says, Today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Confess, repent, receive Christ. But three, and this is the passage that we haven't read yet, but I want to read it with you this morning as we close our final stop where we're going to take a look at recognition goes before restoration. So verse 12, read with me in your scripture. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, tell now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Then it says, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. It's an interesting thing to look at this, but what we can tell, as I said, there's a book end concept, repentance, intercession, and then restoration. That's what happened in this narrative, and it's what happens in our lives. We repent of our sins. We confess our sins. Christ intercedes for us. We trust in his saving work on the cross that in our place he stood condemned, and he currently intercedes with the Father on our behalf. But not only that, there's restoration now. And this is the story of Israel when they repented, when they confessed their sins, when they turned. They were restored. But that restoration did not miss the point of recognizing who saved them. So they built a monument. So it says, Samuel took a stone and set it up and called his name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Verse 12, you see that? Ebenezer is a helping stone. You know, when we sing that, when we sing that old, old hen, keep that in your mind. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Here I raise my helping stone. For the Lord thus far has helped us. It's a good thing to remember. But then we see as a result of this restoration, verse 14, the cities were restored to Israel. 
and then went on, it says, and there was peace. So as we close this morning, I want you to think about that in your own life. I think it's, it's, it's only right for us to recognize the sweet mercy and salvation that comes from recognizing what God has done. That we recognize the sweet mercy God has shown to us. And it's such, an, it's such a beautiful thing to, to, to think of how you can memorialize that. How can you build a monument to the glory of God? Um, there's many ways that you can do that. And actually, it's, it's so fun that we were talking about some of these things in Sunday school. You know, God's got, a, God's got plans for these things, you know. Um, some of the things I'll just share with you. We're a small church. We can do this. Some of the things we even shared in Sunday school this morning, and maybe they'll be of some benefit for you. We talked about... Um, we talked about writing things down. When God works, write it down. Make a note of it. Journal in it. Talk about prayer logs. When you, are, are you praying and are you revisiting the prayers? Or are you just praying and then forgetting them? Never going to see how God answered. And I love what Paula said. So she, she collects stones as memory stones. I love that idea. How can we memorialize the ways in which God delivers us? And it's such a beautiful thing. And I don't know if you have... Um, Maybe you have things in your life that you're thinking, will I ever be delivered from this sin? Maybe you've got habitual sin in your life. Go to the Lord about it. There's no safer place than Christ to go with your sickness. But then expect him to do a work in your heart and revisit it. Memorialize the victories because they will come. They absolutely will come. Why? Because it's not you. It's a supernatural work that gets in your heart that messes you up that changes you from the inside, that then allows you to work and walk in obedience for God's glory. Let us stand and we will close this morning. Father, I pray this morning that we take the words of your scripture, we love them, we cherish them, we hold on to them. And may we consider the hard words of the Puritans who said, kill our children, but do not take the scriptures. Father, may we love and admire your word above everything else. For through it, we know you. For through it, we learn of your mercy. For through it, we learn of what it means to be saved. So, Father, I pray this morning that we will hold on to your word and do what it says. May we be like the people of Israel under the leadership of a godly man named Samuel who said, if your heart is truly turning to the Lord, do away with your idols. Draw near to God and desire to serve him only. May that be our prayer, Father, this morning. God, may we rightly recognize and memorialize your hand of salvation and mercy. And may we recognize that before we can be restored, we must recognize Christ as our only help, our only hope. And in him alone do we trust for our salvation and restoration. And in him we find true peace. So, Father, as we meditate on these things, as we meditate on the truth that confessing and repenting our sins is the safest thing we can do with Christ as our mediator who intercedes for us, 
as we meditate on that truth and on the truth that is right to memorialize the events where your help and provision are undeniable. And we trust you, Father. Let us be quick to repent when we are wrong. Let us confess our sins, confident that Christ will have mercy on us. And Father, let us thank you for the true mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ, who is our advocate, who is our sacrificial lamb, the one who stood in our place condemned and now intercedes for us. May we trust in him. In Jesus' name, amen. As we continue to worship, I ask you to reflect on these truths that we see in God's word, that repentance goes before deliverance. Confession goes before intercession. So as we praise God through song, I implore you to do that. Spend some time reflecting on where you may need to repent and confess your sins before God and then have absolute certainty that Christ will receive you. Let's do that.